This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide. And we're live. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average. On the show this week, we've got Rick Bate, Head of Formula E's Safety for the FIA. Rick, if you just want to come in and introduce yourself. Well, you've partly done it for me, haven't you? So yeah, my name's, uh, my name's Rick. Um, I'm currently Head of Safety at the FIA Formula E Championship. Uh, I've been here for four seasons, um, hand on heart. I didn't think I'd survive one, but four years on, I'm still here. Um, Still finding it a challenge, still loving it. So I don't know if you've seen the podcast, Rick. We like to just go right back to the start. Where you grew up, tell us a bit about your background. Well, I grew up in, uh, although you probably won't hear it in my accent, I, I grew up in deepest, darkest North Wales, in uh, uh, above a town called Llangollen. Um, and the reason I say Llangollen is that I grew up halfway between Wrexham and Llangollen. And most people in my area would choose to say that they grew up in Llangollen rather than Wrexham. Nothing wrong with Wrexham. But uh, back in those days, it was uh, it was an interesting town to live in. Yeah, I grew up uh, typical, you know, Welsh family, um, farming, mining, steelworking, you know, everything that you'd recognise that's typically cliched and Welsh. You know, that was my family. Um, I've got two older sisters who are so much older than me, I didn't even know them. Um, they, they, they kind of moved on both into the RAF by the time I, you know, I could even start to remember anything. But it was an absolutely fantastic place to grow up. Um, and I, I did what most kids of my age did. I avoided getting in trouble by either riding dirt bikes uh, and then I got into rallying, you know, very, very young. So I kept myself out of trouble with something with, generally with petrol. Uh, that's, that sounds wrong, but you know, I mean a petrol engine. <laughs> yeah, there was nothing else involving petrol, I promise. No, so I've, I've been passionate about, uh, about motorsport literally since I was a kid. My, my, my dad, my uncles were equally crazy about cars and uh, yeah, it's rubbed off on me and I've now found myself in the perfect, perfect job. Brilliant, brilliant Rick. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit about your first job, kind of leaving school or leaving university, whatever your path was? So, you know, I, I kind of knew you were going to ask me about this and this, um, it's not really simple. Um, um, uh, I, I, I did my A-levels, I really enjoyed A-levels. I, I didn't really enjoy secondary school. Um, you know, the O-levels I found a bit, just, yeah, I just, I just, I just didn't find my, find my place in the, in the secondary school I was in. However, mm -hmm. I went to a sixth form college um, and uh, yeah, do you know what? I, I started to enjoy studying. Um, I, could, I could see where I was going and uh, I, I was lucky. I had several options. Um, I, I actually won one of the old fashioned Marks and Spencers manager, the managerial apprenticeships. You know, that was like, you know, that was in 80, 81. Mm -hmm. um, um, I also um, tentatively got a, a place in the Royal College of Furniture um, and a place in Loughborough um, to teach. And um, none of it happened because I managed to uh, wrap myself around a lamppost on a motorbike. And so it kind of changed my life a little bit. Um, and so much happened at that time. You know, um, my, my, uh, unfortunately, my dad died. Um, and uh, yeah, I just found myself in France for a year. So um, I bummed around in France. I stayed with my best friend's parents uh, and I came home and my mum said, yeah, you can definitely come home. 
but <laughs> you need to find a job. Uh, my mum was a manager in the NHS and then uh, I literally went within one week I went from going to talk to the chief ambulance officer of what was the then Cluid Ambulance Service um, and within a week I'd actually found myself in the ambulance service no clue. I had no idea where I was going to be, no idea that I was going to be in the emergency services and most definitely would never have planned it because um, I'm not a particularly conforming person um, and to go into, um, you know, go into the emergency services, you know, it's, it's pretty disciplined. Um, ironically, it was really good for me. Um, it taught me to be disciplined. Um, it taught me to grow up. Um, and initially, for about 10 years, I had a really, really good time. Um, but I've always worked in the events industry. So my very first event um, uh, as a volunteer was in 1981, the World Canoe Championships in Bala in North Wales. Um, I still got the pass and I'm still proud of that because, you know, that, that means I'm getting close to 40 years of events. And uh, yeah, I, I had, I've always had these, these, these multiple passions. Um, and that was the first thing I remember volunteering. And, you know, my dad was a volunteer. My dad was on the community council. Um, so that's a, a strong theme throughout my life is to, is to volunteer and give back. Um, and that, I'll, I'll keep coming back to this as we talk this evening. Um, I think it's really important. However, um, I think probably maybe 10 years in, uh, I'd done my paramedic training. I, I was enjoying the additional challenge, uh, spent some time on the air ambulance. I mean, that was, that was amazing. Um, mm. But again, I found the air ambulance in those days, because I worked in North Wales, I would quite often find that the work had been done before we arrived. And literally I was flying taxi. Um, you know, you, in those days, we were no better skilled than the people in the, in, in the, in the ground ambulance. And in fact, that's still the case these days. Um, so I started to get itchy feet. Um, very lucky that my managers always tolerated me. They, they put me on various training courses. Um, and I, I spent a fair amount of time um, teaching, which ignited another passion. Um, mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm really, really happy to, to, to share this with people. Um, my behavior started to change. Um, I didn't recognize it. Um, my wife most certainly did, my friends, uh, but I, I kind of denied this for, for a long, long time. And I muddled on for about another four years until eventually I said, do you know what guys, yeah, I, I've got PTSD. Uh, I need to get myself sorted. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I accepted help. And that was the, that was the number one step. Just say, yeah, I've got a problem. Ah, I need some help. Um, and from that point on, things my life really started to accelerate. I know it sounds kind of strange, but I did some crazy things to get my head together. Um, I did some very, very long distance cycle rides, um, cycle through the States, um, cycle a big part of the Silk Route unaided. Uh, and I came back from that feeling a completely different man. Um, so I spent some time, I thought, reevaluated what was I missing in my life? Um, and uh, I thought, yeah, do you know, I'm probably missing a degree. So uh, I just decided to take my stuff off to university. Um, I'd been doing some work at that time um, on BBC Top Gear. Um, I'll come back to that in a little while and explain how that happened, because I know that sounds like a tall tale. Um, and I actually, I, initially I went to do a Nibosch course, uh, but I discovered quite quickly that as an adult Welsh person, uh, I was entitled to an education grant. So yeah. it, it wouldn't cover me for the Nibosch, but it would cover me, cover me for a, a BSc in Occupational Health and Safety. So into one of our local universities in North Wales, absolutely loved the course, had an absolutely brilliant tutor who was inspirational. Um, I knew at that point that, that I was going to move on. 
Um, so get, getting to, you know, <laughs> getting to the point, um, I, I graduated, I left the ambulance service, um, didn't really know where I was going. And <laughs> incredibly, I think I was out of work for I, I genuinely hand on heart, I think four days. Mm-hmm. Um, because I found that I had a unique skill set. Um, I didn't know an awful lot about health and safety, um, although I'd become grad ayash or, you know, by getting my bachelor's degree. Um, but um, I was able to offer health and safety advice um, and I was still a paramedic. So I became kind of a, um, a, a Scottish friend of mine uh, refers to, um, you know, people like myself in those days as a rug. And I'd never understood what this rug thing was about. It turns out he meant really useful guy. And I was proud to be called a really useful guy. Um, a chap called Eddie Campbell, um, who was uh, you know, just a brilliant, brilliant rigger. And he's, um, he's, he's, he's now moved on uh, a long, long, long way from being a rigger. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I aspired to be one of Eddie's rugs. Um, um, I started my own business. Um, I also worked for a company called Motorsport Vision. And yeah, so for a, for a period of about another, you know, 10 years, um, around my own business. Um, I also jobbed into various uh, different health and safety roles. And over that 10 years, I also met a really, really incredible guy, um, um, uh, a, a solicitor, uh, who only worked in the events industry. Okay. He kept pop, he kept popping up on top gear and, um, he said, yeah, okay. That bit of paper you've got doesn't mean anything. You've got absolutely no experience. So um, he made it his mission to get me some experience. Um, I, I carried on studying. Um, I plodded through um, a, a master's, which I never finished because just never had the time. Um, but I did a postgraduate diploma in Derby Uni in event safety management. Um, that was another door opener because I started to meet really interesting people in the events industry. Mm-hmm. So I'm still running my business. I'm still gaining experience in health and safety. Um, and I started to make um, a little bit of a, you know, not a reputation, but I started to become that really useful guy that could do two or three jobs. And it was brilliant. Uh, I worked on the World Rally Championship. I worked for Red Bull. I worked for Monster Energy. Um, worked for the Ford um, World Rally team. And, and this was all because I had both of these skills. But I knew that this was this had a finite life because I wanted to be good at health and safety and I was aspiring to be, you know, a good health and safety practitioner um, and to try and keep both of those skill sets up at the same time. It just wasn't possible. So, um, yeah, 2011, um, I was offered a full time post with uh, Capita working for a, a pretty well known guy called Richard Lynn. Um, Richard was one of my uh, mentors and my inspirations. And I thought it was an honor to go and, go and work with him. And uh, yeah, do you know what? For, a, for, a, for five years, four years, five years, it worked out really well. Um, I, the jobs I've done, I mean, I, I've listed them because I can't remember everything I did. But I mean, you, you look back on your life and you think, if you're going to tell somebody that what you've done, you know, I, I think half of the time people will think it's a tall tale. Um, I've done... Um, two Olympic Games, I've done a Winter Games, um, I've, I've worked at a distance on a Commonwealth Games, um, I've done um, a, um, yeah, I've, I've actually also worked um, on the Arab Games, I've forgotten that one, um, and, you know, the list of other things I've done, you know, just, just goes on, but that came about through, through Capita, and I know Capita these days don't have a good reputation, um, mm. but I was working for a very small part of an organisation, um, being run by a really, really, um, you know, dynamic guy, 
And I met some good people there as well. You know, people that I still work with now and, and people that I would still always lean into for advice. So there were good years. Um, but one of the things I recognized is people would say, yeah, you think you've got 10 years experience, but you've only ever worked in the events industry. What do you really know? And yeah, you know, fair point. I didn't really know much. So uh, um, I, again, I, I kind of reached out a little bit and, and I got a phone call from a company. I had no idea what they did. They were called MHI Vestas. Mm-hmm. So I went for an interview and I realized actually that it was Mitsubishi and it was offshore turbines. So um, um, I jumped in there for a little while. Bit of an unusual role for me, this one. Um, I, I, I did do some work offshore, very, very little. Uh, but the main emphasis was for, um, for me to work with the sales team um, and effectively go in with the sales team um, and answer questions around installation and servicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Um, but, um, again, I got itchy feet. If you've been in the events industry, you've done, you know, you've done rock and roll tours, you know, and, and, and you've met incredible people. Um, <laughs> although you work crazy hours and, and to, I'm going to be really straight with you here. Blair, and I, I did get into a little bit of trouble with IOSH about four years ago. They interviewed me, um, in, in the old magazine. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I was honest, you know, if you work in the events industry, I can't prescribe to work within the working time directive. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll come back to this again a little bit later on. Uh, is it appropriate? Probably not. Um, but you know, there's a lot of people pay to come to concerts or pay to come to live events. Um, and ultimately, you know, we, we make some sacrifices. Um, mm-hmm. um, we're never ever, um, we, we don't make these, these decisions lightly, but, um, you know, it's, it's a tough gig, and, but I, I thrive on it. Um, I thrive on the fact that, you know, uh, I genuinely believe that, that good health and safety is incorporated early into live, into live events, you know, to become part of the creative process, not a bolt on afterwards, which so many people, you know, just don't recognize. Um, uh, and that's been one of my mantras, get me in early, get me in, you know, as part of the, uh, the, the, the early creative uh, process, get me in from day one. Let me, let me have an input into the storyboard. And, um, and, and that's, that's worked. And I still use it where I am now because you know, you, you guys, you, you see Formula E as um, a street racing. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, it's a, a, so much more goes on with Formula E than, than, than I think most people will realize. And kind of moving on to, uh, uh, there was a short, I had a short um, period where I've, I've, I've always fallen back on teaching as well. Uh, it's kind of been a safe place for me. Um, I did some teaching, um, very, very basic stuff for the University of Chester through a, through a friend and colleague. Um, but I, uh, I got a phone call, um, absolutely out of nowhere. Um, could I jump on a plane and fly to Mexico? And it was, it was from one of the directors of Formula E. I, I had done some work for them previously, but not, not, not a huge amount. Um, in fact, what I'd done is, um, is get, um, roads closed uh, in different countries to allow them to go demonstrate the cars but uh, I, I flew over to mexico um they wanted an audit they'd had um three serious accidents involving the public um mm-hmm. in the three previous races uh, and they were consecutive and they were they were really worried um i did my audit delivered the audit and uh, my yeah i arrived in formula e by the most bizarre bizarre circumstances i was actually leaving and the then ceo um who calls me Doc? You can probably tell why he calls me Doc. Um, <laughs> um, he actually said, uh, "Doc, where are you going?" I said, uh, uh, "I'm 
going home. He went, no, 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 no. He said, you leave Formula E when I tell you to leave Formula E. And that's kind of where I am now. Um, I, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an amazing way to join the company, but um, it's not been, it's not been plain sailing. It's been a, it's been a huge challenge and we'll, we'll probably revisit this a little bit later on, but that's where I started. That's where I am now. Um, and hopefully, you know, I'll be here for a, a little while, a little while longer. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us, Rick. Um, just to touch on a couple of points, the bit that you mentioned about your PTSD, that's so brave to be able to speak up about that. And I think you'll help a lot of people, especially someone in your position that's able to speak out and say, look, I didn't feel okay. I spoke up about it. I got help. And after I got help, my life accelerated beyond all belief. So that, that's excellent. Thank you very much for mentioning that. And I'm, I'm really happy to do this. That There's a, a lot of people out there who, who are prepared to give up their time. One thing I, I, I will do is that I will talk anybody through my story, um, through mm -hmm. what happened, through, through the journey, through the illness. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm not going to counsel anybody. I'm not going to offer advice on what they should do. Um, I, I can only tell my story. Um, and, and hopefully people can glean something from that. Uh, that might help them, you know, make that initial step. That 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 for me is the key. Um, and you know, there's this presumption that's just males that 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 won't admit. It's not. It's not the case. Um, mm. but, you know, um, you know, females are, are just as likely to hide um, from from this condition uh, or any mental health conditions. You know, males and females. I find, you know, we we just presume that blokes because you know blokes are tougher and harder. You know, and we, we kind of assume or we, we kind of correlate, you know, PTSD with the, the military and the emergency services. Again, that's not necessarily true either. So anybody out there that wants to have a chat with me, you know, you can reach out to me through through LinkedIn, through IOSH. I am more than happy to tell you my story. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the way that, that, that I, I found to um, uh, to get through it. Uh, it's, it's typical of me. Uh, it's not traditional. Uh, what I did was off the wall uh, and my, my, my physicians really didn't like the idea. Um, but again, if you want to talk to me, please, uh, I'm more than happy to share this with you. Okay, much appreciated, Rick. You also mentioned that you were on Top Gear. Can we explore that a little bit? Oh, yeah. <laughs> See the colour of the hair? <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine, and I'm really looking forward to hearing this bit. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, again, the, uh, the, the, the lawyer that I mentioned that, that, that works, you know, just in, uh, works at, actually, he's a safety guy in the events industry. He's a really interesting guy. Um, he's actually become one of my absolute best friends in life. Um, but he just said, you know, we, we, you know, if you prepare to use both of your skills, uh, we'll get you onto the show. Um, and, and predominantly what I did was, uh, a lot of the live shows and I did a lot of the live tours. So, um, um, they, they kind of stopped the live show, I think in 2012, 2013, but I did 11 years on that world tour immediately after the series. Mm -hmm. And there were some fascinating times. There were some, you know, horrifying times. Um, but the, this idea that this irreverent approach, you know, um, it actually wasn't the case. Um, it was, it was Hattrick Productions, uh, a guy um, called Andy Willman. Um, and uh, yeah, although it looked um, as if it was kind of off the wall, it really wasn't. Everything was scripted uh, and the safety was really quite strong because ultimately um, the product was being, you know, was being sold to the BBC and therefore um, the, uh, the production company had to prescribe to the BBC standards. So, uh, yeah, there was still some hairy stuff, but 
um, yeah. The other thing I used to do, um, because from a distance, um, if Clarkson was too bored to actually do a photo shoot and it was a long shot, you know what I'm going to say? Both, both of us got crazy hair. So uh, and it, uh, one, of the, one of the funniest things that ever happened, we were doing the live show in Earl's Court and um, I got to Earl's Court and I looked up at the poster and I thought, yeah, that's not Clarkson, that's me driving that car. So this massive photograph of me driving a GT40. And um, in fairness, they, they, the, the guys actually got, um, got that poster for me. So uh, it was a great, great memento. Um, it, it, equally, it was good fun, but it, it, it wasn't easy. Um, again, crazy hours, lots of traveling. Um, and yeah, um, on, on that show, it wasn't necessarily about, you know, health and safety per se. It was, it was a broader picture. It was about welfare. Um, it was about, you know, some really basic stuff like, you know, making sure that people were properly fed and people had, you know, you know, were actually getting hydrated, you know, some of the places we worked, it yeah. just wasn't easy to put that in place. So while there was, you know, there was the typical, you know, issues around, you know, you'd be in a different country and you'd look up and think, is that rigger really doing that? Or is that lighting technician really hanging off that, you know, hanging by just one hand while trying to fix that light in place. That kind of stuff did happen, but um, that, that, that stuff is, is, is manageable with experience. What I found difficult was actually trying to influence um, a change in the way that the staff were looked after. Um, and that kind of put me at odds uh, with, with, not so much with the, the presenters, but definitely put me at odds with the, um, the production company. But I lasted for 11 years. so. Um, obviously, I wasn't that painful during those eleven years. You must have been doing something right. <laughs> Were you on? Or the... they could, or they couldn't find anybody else. <laughs> Were you on the famous Argentina trip that they were kicked no. out of the country? No, I wasn't. Uh, the one that horrifies me is the um, is the they're trying to create their amphi cars to go across the um, the English Channel. That was, ah, yeah. that, was that was an interesting one. Um, <laughs> But I, I, yeah, you know, I, I think I, I do tell people that I, you know, it's, it was almost a life sentence. It was eleven years, but um, I, I, it, it wasn't. A, it wasn't full time, you know, because it's 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 film and TV. You know, you you job in and you job out. Uh, but that that opened doors. Um, I uh, one one of our regular drivers um, was an Indian uh, Indian driver, um, really good driver, typical of his ilk, did really well in junior formulas, uh, and then hit the glass ceiling. Just didn't have the money to get to that next level. Um, and, and he became a, a kind of a brand ambassador for Hero Honda, Honda. Um, mm-hmm. and said, well, actually, we're going to do some filming in the UK. Do you want to come and get involved in that? So, yeah, of course, you know, anything for, you know, I was going to say anything for experience, but also there's a bottom line. You still need, you still need to live. Um, you know, you need the salary, you need to get some money in. Um, and on the back of that, would you believe I actually did three Bollywood movies, which how does a kid from a, you know, from North Wales, end up doing Bollywood movies. And uh, now that, that was, again, uh, another fantastic experience. But what I have found is that you do something, you meet somebody and it leads you on to something else. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the way I've gone through. And I, 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 I don't think I've ever turned anything down, even if it's, you know, um, I certainly haven't turned anything down if it involves travel because, you know, travel, hand on heart, travel's good fun. You meet, you meet interesting people and, um, you know, you, you make yourself more useful because you learn, you know, you, you, you learn what's required of you in multiple different countries. Um, it's great that you can fall back on Barber, but it's actually really useful uh, if you're in a meeting and somebody challenges you in Berlin or in Paris, that you actually have half an idea of what you know, the regulation they're referring to. Um, 
I, I, I made it my mission to, to understand the code de travail very, very, very early in my career, working back into between um, UK and Paris. Um, I'll come to that in a while as well. Um, and um, that, that's actually been really useful. I, I, I struggled in, in, in France for a little while, and then, nope, I'm just going to knuckle down, um, learn the relevant parts of the code, um, and then, you know, add to my, my skill set and still try to be that really useful guy that this guy, you know, that Eddie Campbell saw all those years before. So, so I've been a bit of a, I think it's fair to say I've been a nomad. <laughs> Travelled around quite a lot, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about Formula E then, Rick? Because I'm absolutely fascinated that, first of all, big fan, love the cars, love the technology that's being rolled out and all of the stuff that's trialled that goes with Formula E and all of the kind of development stuff that's being done. Tell us a little bit more about managing health and safety and Formula E and what it consists of. Well, let's take a step back. So when I joined Formula E, um, I like cars. Mm -hmm. I'm leaning towards an electric car because I get to drive some really interesting electric cars, you know, through through work. Um, but I still live in a relatively rural area, and um, I, I don't want to put myself in that that where that issue where I've got this 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 range issue because of the battery capacity. Um, but when I joined Formula E, uh, I'll be really straight with you. And I, I know that, you know, I will send the link on to, uh, to, to my colleagues in Formula E. Um, I wasn't sure, you know, in those early days. Um, I knew that the people behind Formula E, um, with their, their, their history in, in motorsport, I knew that it was, you know, the right people were there. I just didn't see it. And what I didn't understand is, uh, it's not just about racing. It's a much bigger picture. That the racing is just one part of it. It's it's about the integration of the brand um, on so many different levels. The other thing, the the demographic of Formula E is is totally different to to other championships. Um, our, our demographic, you know, it's kind of peaking out. You know, probably mid thirties is you know anybody sub 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 thirty five, maybe even younger. That's that's where we're targeting. Um, the we you know the, the, we've integrated really well into into esports, but we did that before everybody else. We were the first to do it. Um, so there's there's a much much bigger picture around what what Formula E are looking to do. And you know there's a famous Henry and Henry Ford quote. You know you 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 race on a Sunday, you sell on a Monday. Um, mm -hmm. We have that, that is part of our ethos because if you look at our teams, um, we have twelve teams. Uh, nine of those teams are um, manufacturers, uh, and uh, I suspect in the in the next you know two or three seasons, um, we may find that there are more manufacturers joining us. Um, you know, it, it is you know a fact that some Formula One um, some Formula One teams are currently struggling. Um, if, if you could, you know, I, I won't go into the, the the difference in costs, but the difference in costs between Formula E and Formula One is 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 exponential. Mm -hmm. um, what we, we we're not presuming to deliver, you know, anything like that product at the moment, but you know we're still growing. So, what does Formula E feel like to me? Well, you guys see the shiny bit. You see the shiny bit for forty-five minutes an hour on a on a, any given Saturday, um, twelve or fourteen times a year. Um, when I um, when I ever talk about specifically health and safety in Formula E, um, the most the thing that surprises people the most is that it. I, I consider us to be a construction company. Mm -hmm. We're the only championship that builds our own tracks. And it's not just a matter of dropping a few concrete, concrete blocks and then putting some debris fence on top. If you think about the infrastructure that goes with it, you know, we need to install our own, uh, our own, effectively our own grid. 
Um, the amount of power that our cars draw during charging is, is, is really surprising. Um, we, we, we're currently getting up to somewhere around 1.7 megawatts of power required. Um, that has to be planned and installed. Uh, the, the, the technology that, that's required, um, all of this comes either in containers or comes in, um, in our aircraft. And mm -hmm. you know, the, the logistics behind all that, there's, there's, I have some responsibility around logistics. Our logistics centers in, in Donington. Um, I work very closely with the guys around, uh, particularly around battery safety. Um, we, we actually fly the batteries um, in, a, in a very clever UN um, approved container. Um, and yeah, that's, that's a big piece of work as well. But mm -hmm. if you think about logistics, the planning, actually building the tracks, taking the tracks down, um, bringing in all of the, uh, the human elements that you need to deliver that, then bringing in the shiny bit that you guys see on TV, bringing in the, um, uh, the race cars and the drivers. Um, it, it's just an absolutely massive operation. Um, and my, my colleagues in Formula One, um, um, you know, I, I don't care. I'm going to say this. They do definitely have an easier life because they rock up um, the week before the race. Um, mm -hmm. They've got pre-built everything. Um, yes, they have problems and yes, they, their logistics are, you know, they're huge, um, but they don't have to build a track. Um, and that's, that's what makes us different. And I think that's good for us. Um, what we just did in Berlin, um, we delivered um, six races on three different tracks in nine days. Mm -hmm. Now, no one else can do that. To, to keep people interested, we can change the track because it is literally a matter of, you know, moving the block. It's not as simple as it sounds, um, but we've done it now nearly 70 times over the past six seasons. We're getting pretty good at it. Um, and it adds to the excitement. Um, and it's, you know, it's, for me, it, I, there are days where I'm thinking, why am I doing this to myself? I'm nearly 60. There has to be something I could do that's easier than this, but it's keeping me young. I'm working with incredibly talented young people. Um, I'm learning from them. Hopefully they, you know, they, they glean something from, you know, this old gray haired old dog from North Wales who's been around for a little while. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't see me, you know, hopefully unless Formula E changes their mind, I don't see me going anywhere else for, you know, for the foreseeable. Um, and um, yeah, I'm enjoying the challenge. Um, there's just some, I mean, I could talk to you about Formula E itself, but you know, the, I think the key thing that interests people is, uh, can interest people, uh, sorry, interests people is probably um, the charging, um, the changes in the technology and charging and the batteries. Mm. When I joined Formula E, we needed two cars to do a 45 minute race. Mm -hmm. um, in less than four years, we've gone from uh, need, the drivers needing to do a, you know, a, a, a swap of the cars halfway through the race. Now we could genuinely run um, a race at full power, one battery for an hour. Uh, and that's even that changing. In fact, the battery capacity is, is now, the, the technology is so good that from our next um, series of cars, which will come, which will appear in two years time, um, we'll be able to introduce pit stops. Um, so we will send the cars out with not enough, um, with not enough capacity in the battery um, to, to run for the full race. And that will mean they will need to come in and rapid charge. So in between 20 and 30 seconds, um, they'll be able to top their batteries up and they will be able to, to go out and complete the race. But the technology in the car as well, the regeneration, um, how the guys drive the cars, these, these are not easy cars to drive. And equally, um, I know they don't make a lot of noise, um, 
But if you can just focus on the racing, how many times they overtake in a lap and yeah. compare the overtaking in Formula One, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's more like the racing you'd find at Formula Ford level. Lots of excitement, lots of, there's a little bit of wheel banging, which does cause us some headaches. We do get more red flags than probably some series. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cars are just hard to drive. You know, we, we have Formula One drivers come and they struggle. They, they, they just can't get their heads around how these cars work. Um, and we find that the guys that come from GT racing, from endurance racing, because there's a similar technology in those cars, um, although it's a hybrid technology, they, um, they, 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 they find it easier to drive the cars. But, you know, bear in mind that if, if you're doing 185 miles an hour and you hit a concrete wall, um, you know, it's hot. <laughs> it certainly is going to hurt. Um, so these are not slow cars at all. Their acceleration is, is, is lifted to scene. But they don't corner. Yeah, they don't corner like a Formula One car. They don't, you know, they, they don't perform like a Formula One car, but we're not trying to make them do that. We're trying to make it interesting as part of a bigger, as part of a bigger package in a bigger picture. Uh, something else I guess people don't commonly, commonly know is that um, we're, we're Formula One and Formula E are part of the Liberty Media Group. Um, so ultimately, um, very, very, very top end. Um, you know, we, we are actually managed by that same, same group. Um, and, and we also lean into other partners in the group, you know, Ticketmaster and Live Nation. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we deliver a lot of entertainment around our events. Um, mm-hmm. We have uh, something called an e-village, which is, you know, there is, there is so much to do at one of our races. Um, in fact, if we get it, if our team get it absolutely correct, um, some people will miss the race because the stuff we've got happening in the e-village is so interesting. That, you know, people get distracted. Um, it, it's it, it's like a huge. I mean, it, it's kind of a motor show, but it's better. That's all. That that's the best way to put it. But the the other thing I, I, that keeps me interested in Formula E is that is obviously the technology. Um, but we've got some great people. Um, you know, we I think I I, I want to mention this a little bit later on, but um, we've obviously had to deliver the last last races in Berlin in in very unique circumstances. Um, but to get around these COVID protocols, um, we didn't need to go to a third party. We've, we've, got, we've got staff within our technology team who are more than capable of writing our own programs for us. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll come back to that because I'm, I'm kind of proud of that. But it, uh, I guess you're going to ask me at some point, what's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life? And uh, it's going to have something to do with Formula E, I promise you. <laughs> we'll come to that in good time, Rick. We'll come to that in good time. So if you just continue telling us a little bit more about some of the interesting aspects that you've had across your health and safety career, because I know we've only scratched the surface at the moment and we want to delve a little bit deeper. Yeah, I think do you know some of the some of my my I think some of my I, I don't want to say some of my successes because I, I you know, uh, my biggest success is because that, that kind of smacks of arrogance, but it, I don't mean it that way. Um, but, you know, sometimes I find that the most difficult challenges, you know, you, you look for unique solutions. Um, uh, and that's one of the things that I've made, I've always been open to um, because through my career, there's never been an option um, to stop. Um, if you work in the events industry, ultimately somewhere, somebody wants to either, you know, um, push a button um, so an uplink to a satellite goes live um, so that your event is is televised or an audience is waiting to see the show so I've always looked for um, I would say unique approaches but I've always looked for solutions rather than um, rather than I, rather than rather than stop um, you know we 
I've always taken a pause, reevaluated, and looked for a solution. And that, that's what, what's driven me through my career. So I have had some real difficult times. Um, uh, I, I found uh, the Winter Olympics in Sochi really, really difficult. Um, I made it difficult for myself um, because I applied for the wrong uh, visa. I had a single entry, single exit visa. That wouldn't yeah. have been too bad, but my contract was for a year. So I was in Sochi for a year. Um, and that, 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 that was hard work. But what, what I struggled with um, in Sochi was, uh, I, I guess quite a few people have seen the stories about uh, local people being forcibly evicted so that they could build. And, and some of that was true. Um, I, I found that difficult. I saw some of it because I was there early. But it was just a blatant disregard for life. There was no value. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I was working on the opening and closing ceremonies in Sochi um, and because we've got a well-developed um, European health system operating in our little, our little bubble, um, mm. you know, um, construction workers were bringing their colleagues to us um, and uh, yeah, we had four pretty, pretty horrendous um, fatalities while I was there um, and it was, the, 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 it was just so futile. There was, there was nowhere to send these people, they weren't insured. Um, uh, and we, we did our very best to, to try and influence um, our local colleagues, but ultimately, if, there's, if the culture doesn't exist, you, you can't in a, in a short period of time, you know, less than 12 months, you, you're not going to change a culture in that time. What we did manage to do um, is bring in some key people from, um, from the local production agencies to work with us, uh, and those people have gone on to be, um, to, to be you know, uh, I, I would say one of them has become world leading um, um, in, in health and safety in the events industry. And, you know, when I first met him, who would ever have believed that there would be Russians that would be that influential in the events industry? Because at that time, and we're not talking long ago, it was six years ago, um, they, they really didn't have any culture at all of, of health and safety. Uh, so I found that difficult, not as a technical challenge to, you know, or, you know um, to me as a, as a, you know, a health and safety practitioner, what I found that challenging was because they, um, you know, it's something that we all hold sacrosanct um, in Russia, perhaps, you know, wasn't as important as it was to, to, to me and my colleagues. Um, and, you know, the, uh, losing a life to us is, is, uh, is, is truly shocking. But over there at the time, it just was accepted. Um, I found that really hard. Um, and I've, I've had other challenges. Um, Generally, my challenges have been around trying to get something built, trying to get something delivered in the safest way as possible with appropriate mitigations without taking, you know, undue risk um, in very, very, very short timescales. Um, and that doesn't always have to be in a, you know, um, you know in a different country. Um, I've always found um, Windsor, Royal Windsor Horse Show. Um, they do so much in Royal Windsor and it's, it, there's multiple activity happening, you know, in close proximity. Um, right the way through the whole show um, and that is difficult just to keep your head around you know you really have to be deeply embedded in the schedule to understand how much is happening where it's happening and where the key risks are that day um, and there was a, 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 a person was run over um, in Royal Windsor I think it was 2011 uh, and that focused that, that brought together a, a group of people who focused on um, traffic management and crowd management, which hadn't existed before. And it's very, very sad that it took, uh, you know, a, a serious accident um, for, for, that, for that, that change to be made. Um, 
but they did make the change. They they stepped up. They accepted that they needed to make change, and and it's it vastly improved. Um, sadly, I think we see this right the way through most industries that the companies don't react until they've had a, a serious incident, um, and then they 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 do two things. They 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 tend to take knee-jerk reactions, um, and then they become very introspective uh, and don't quite often don't see the um, the um, the actual the bigger picture. Um, they just default straight to a root cause analysis um, and, and don't necessarily think their way through the process. They quite often, and we've all have seen this, people will have decided the, uh, the you know, what what the causation for the accident was probably before they've taken their first you know, witness statement. So um, again, um, we've all been through it. Um, I, I have my own my own approach. Um, I, it's a little bit of what I picked up when I worked offshore, uh, and it, it, it's what I picked up through working with you know people who are you know significantly cleverer and, and, and brighter than me, uh, and I've and I've lent into them for their experience. We all find our own way, and, yeah. I, and I'm I'm happy to admit that you know um, I came to this industry late. Um, it, it's been a really fun um, you know approaching. It has been 20 years now, um, but there are people out there who uh, you know have got a lot more experience than me. Yeah. And do you think your life in the ambulance service before going into health and safety stood you in good stead for the career that you were going through? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm smiling because um, there's still people who, who still think I'm a paramedic, which I find, you know, it's nine years ago. I haven't mm -hmm. forgotten what I, what I did. Um, and I'm really careful now. I, I don't definitely don't give advice. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still, um, I've still got a, um, uh, I still got a first aid certificate, but that doesn't qualify me as a paramedic. You know, for sure, absolutely not. I know, I know one end of a bandage from the other now, and I, I'm, I'm quite happy at that level. What what it has done um, is we we've just written our own protocols for managing COVID, um, which we thought would be for one race. And uh, sadly, it looks like we'll be using these protocols um, um, for a lot longer than uh, than just the one race in Berlin. Um, but having you know having been a paramedic for so many years um, and while I pretend that I'm not interested, I, 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 I do read the magazines and keep in touch with what's going on. Um, that, that again, uh, that, that gave me a, an additional skill, which uh, I was, I was able to offer to my colleagues and, and they lent into me. Um, and yeah, we actually have produced, um, I, I'm actually going to say this because I'm actually really proud of the, the, the colleagues that, that I worked with to deliver this. We've actually created a, a world leading, um, you know, a return, return to racing COVID protocol. We haven't reinvented the wheel. We've taken advice from the Bundesliga. Um, we definitely didn't follow what they did in Formula One. Um, that we knew that wasn't going to work for us um, because we're a very different series and we deliver our races very differently. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we did some, we, we, we recognized early that we couldn't take our normal ecosystem of four and a half thousand people around the world. Um, I should have said that earlier, shouldn't I? You know, our, our ecosystem around a build is four and a half thousand, which probably makes us the biggest building uh, or, or construction project in any city that we go to while yeah. we're there. Um, so we, we, we reduced our, 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 our traveling circus to 1,000 people. Um, mm. we, we increased our build schedules by 100%. Um, and we, we just asked our colleagues to be tolerant um, and live inside a hygiene bubble for five weeks. That mm -hmm. meant going to your hotel, staying pretty much in your room, um, traveling to the track, 
staying in designated zones, being PCR tested um, every five days, um, being tolerant of all of these tests, um, and you know, with the end game of delivering the race. Now, one really, really, for me, this is this just, you know, I don't want to say I'm proud of this, but I'm actually really pleased. Um, the FIA noticed what we've done, and the FIA actually have adopted uh, our protocol. Um, so moving forward, other 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 race championships will be able to use what the the work that we did. Uh, and there was an awful lot of late nights. Uh, it took us three months to develop the protocol. Um, we needed the protocol to be passed, um, you know, in in Berlin. Initially, it was by the the Berlin Senate. Um, and then we had to get buy-in from the two local authorities, uh, the two local borough, effectively the two local borough councils, uh, who also approved the work that we've done. So it was a huge amount of work. Um, we met some amazing people. Um, we've, we've actually now looking at how we can take that, these, this, this protocol onto our next race in Santiago in, it seems like ages, but it's like only four months away at the start of our next season. Um, because uh, I'm afraid the reality of COVID is that uh, we're not going to be seeing the spectators at our races anytime soon. Um, and if we are going to take a thousand people around the world to deliver these races, we have to do it in a way that, uh, that as far as reasonably practical, um, maintains their safety. Okay. Um, so you've mentioned quite a couple of places that you've been with the racing, Rick. One that stuck out to me was New York. How was that? Um, yeah. <laughs> I love New York. Uh, so I've, uh, New York has been a, a, a city that I've, I've, you know, I've spent a lot of time in. Um, mm -hmm. And because of that, I thought I knew my way around events in New York. Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> learned that lesson the hard way. And then there was there was two two big lessons I've learned in New York uh, over the past four years: um, the absolute authority of the fire department and the absolute authority of the city. Um, the fire department came in to inspect our first race and they insisted on putting, um, you know, they wanted to bring all their toys to play. And, and uh, you know, having been in the emergency services, I kind of thought, oh, this is massively overkill. Um, and I might actually have said that to one or two of the, um, the senior fire officers that, uh, do you really need all of these boats because our cars don't tend to do what they did in the old movies that, you know, they fly out of the circuit and the drivers drown. Um, um, and then I thought it was a really, really wicked wheeze that one day, uh, it, it, what we found that each, each watch as they changed over, uh, would want to come and have a look at what we're doing. And I, I'm up for that. Um, and, you know, show anybody around the site, show anybody the cars, because that's what they're interested in. They want to know about the cars. They want to know about the batteries. They want to know about the fire risk associated with the battery. Um, and they want to know about the charging. But mm -hmm. we had a, um, um, a, 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 what we would call a station officer, um, came swaggering onto the site with his uniform, his hat on, and his, you know, um, he, he did look the full John Wayne. And uh, he asked, uh, like, where's the refueling rig yet? So I, I actually had a battery and a piece of flex. I had a, a, sorry, a plug and a piece of flex. Yeah, we don't use fuel. And um, everybody else found it very funny. He eventually found it funny. Let's say he didn't find it funny at the time. So yeah, what, what, me, me choosing to be a, what, yeah, as he called me later, a wise ass, um, could have backfired. But what that actually did, because you know we we we, we both laughed at each other, um, I've now built a really strong relationship with with the fire department, mm -hmm. um, and 
I've learned so much. I mean, a lot of the fire code, um, particularly in Manhattan, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's still handwritten. I mean, they, they trace the, the code right back um, to the early days when the fire department was predominantly, you know, run, run by the Irish mm-hmm. um, and very, very proud um, Irish, you know, firefighters. Um, and it's just fascinating to see that book that goes back 150 years. Um, yeah. And, and, and it, it's actually a fantastic history of fire safety in New York. And I, I, every time I see it, I say, guys, you should publish this. There's people around the world that would love to see this. And it's like, no, nah, who wants to know about what we do? But one of the things that did that I'd learned very quickly is that fire, um, fire safety uh, and not even the legislation because they don't necessarily have legislation like we do. They have, um, they have you know, the, the fire safety uh, requirements change almost from a borough to borough um, mm-hmm. at a borough to borough level. Um, and they, they just don't get that they're doing something quite, quite unique, but yeah, I've, I've built a good relationship and I, I'm now really proud of that relationship. Um, and I, I've even sent them products because they have an amazing, um, they have an amazing testing lab, um, in Brooklyn. Um, we wanted to try out a new, um, a, a new medium for firefighting called Lithex. Um, and I wasn't sure. So I bought a few cans, uh, and I sent it to the guys, um, in Brooklyn. And uh, yeah, the, the report I got back was world class. And um, yeah, we, we decided to use it. Um, it's, it has some benefits. Unfortunately, it's not really beneficial until, um, and, and, until the battery has gone into full thermal runaway, which is a point where you wouldn't really want to be anywhere near the battery anyway. But it just shows how um, from initially quite a fractious relationship, you know, you can, you know, you, you, can, um, you can be introduced to this like, esoteric volume of you know almost like the dark arts of fire safety in in, in new york uh, and i'm actually really proud that uh, that that they've actually allowed me uh, into that not in a sanctum but they actually do speak to me which is a uh, you know apparently they don't generally do that um and i'm proud of that and i also give them tickets so they're, they're not daft <laughs> <laughs> so what's been the most challenging race so far then right apart from the one that we're going to talk about which was Germany, which was just off the chart, running six races in such a close proximity of time and on such different tracks. Other than that one, we'll go into that in a little minute, but what's been your most challenging one, most challenging country to operate in? So all all new races are difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can explain why, why they're different, difficult. And some of the reasons they're difficult around health and safety is that uh, until recently, the whole of the health and safety function in Formula E was a one-man band. Um, it still effectively is a one-man band. It's just that now I've got 16 really talented people around the world who, who work with us, albeit on an ad hoc, ad hoc basis, but you know, they work with us at several races a year. So I, I now have a, 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 you know, a good team to lean into. Um, um, but I think if I had to pick one race, um, it's probably Sanya. Um, which is a, 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 an island um, off, the, off the coast of China. Um, and they just, it's so difficult. They just didn't have the equipment we needed. Um, they didn't have, they certainly didn't have a safety culture. Um, and the island is developing as a, as a, as a you know, kind of a six-star holiday resort. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, I think in probably 10 years' time, it might be a place that, you know, we might be going to on holiday, yeah. uh, but currently it's a place that Chinese and Russians go to. Um, 
And it's a beautiful place. Um, I stayed in one of the nicest hotels I've ever stayed in in my life. I couldn't, <laughs> I walked in the room and went, really? Is this for me? Wow. <laughs> it was really it's good. the Hawaii of China, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and there's some great hotels. Uh, and, you know, I think in, in a little while it will be great. Um, however, trying to put on an international motorsport race on what effectively is uh, a shut down dual carriageway, which mm -hmm. means that we disenfranchised that population for two weeks um, and just not having this, you know, you, you can't get the fencing that you need. You can't get, um, you know, if you forget something, you didn't put it on the aircraft or you didn't put it on the boat. You, you, you're not going to get it because the, the nearest place you probably would find it um, would probably be Shanghai um, or even Hong Kong. So yeah. that was difficult from a logistical point of view. Um, people were great. Um, and again, as with, you know, I, I find this with, with, with my Chinese colleagues uh, and when I've worked in China, I've been very lucky to work in, in Shanghai for quite a while, um, quite, quite a few times over the past 20 years. Um, Chinese people learn very, very quickly. And not only do they learn, they then actually develop and improve. So that's, that's one of the things that fascinates me about China. Um, sadly, Sanya, good people, nice place, no infrastructure. So that was difficult for, a, for that reason. But uh, we also had a very difficult race in Santiago, Chile um, in season four. Yeah. And that was, that, was, that was a Formula E cock up. Mm -hmm. um, we designed our track um, on two sides of a river, which um, and both sides of the river, the main roads um, ran into the into the center of the city. Um, they bisected a student a student area, um, and we then closed the two bridges that allowed people to get in and out of the two halves of the city. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you live if you're a student and you want to cross to a different campus, while we were in the city, you couldn't do it. Um, and it was the first time that we'd ever experienced any, any actual hostility. Um, it was called a riot. It, it absolutely wasn't a riot. Um, it was probably 20 or 30 very, very hacked off people who made it uh, very clear to us by throwing, you know, throwing bricks and bottles. Um, and so, you know, it's not all, it's not all easy. You know, you want to build a, you want to build a circuit in the middle of a city to get those amazing backdrops. Um, and so that, you know, your, your cars are on show to the people. Um, because our tickets are cheap, you know, we're not, we're not charging Formula One prices. We want people to come to our races. But unless you understand the concept, and if, you know, you shut someone's city down, that's probably, you know, it's likely to lead to a, a few issues. And yeah, we had those issues for sure. But we now go to a different place in Santiago. And invariably, I promise you, if I could wheel in 20 or 30 of my colleagues from Formula E, I guarantee you that nearly all of them would say that their favorite race is now Santiago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just I, I love, yeah, and, and I love the weirdness of Santiago because you just you just on that 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 point where, um, you, you know, um, back eighty, no, hundred years ago, um, thousands of, of Welsh farmers uh, and their families moved to South America, and mm -hmm. it's very very weird to be able to speak Welsh in South America to somebody who knows your language but speaks it in a with a Spanish accent, which is totally bizarre. So. I, I, I love the culture. I love the people. And it's weird. You know, I, I'd never been to that far south in, in South America before. I, I didn't realize how Europeanized it was. You know, then it, it, it's very European, um, very, very influenced by Spain, by Germany. Not so much British influence there. Um, although, you know, the 
Chile as a, as a, as a nation was founded by an Irishman, Bernardo mm -hmm. O'Higgins. Um, so yeah, it's, if I was going to go on, 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 on vacation somewhere and you said you have to go on vacation somewhere where Formula E goes, probably New York would be number one, but Chile would, Santiago would be right up there as well. Yeah. And what's been your favourite show that you've done, Rick? Because you've done multiple big rock shows, you've done the racing, you've done loads of different events. What's been the absolute standout one that you thought that was the best event I've ever done? Mm. So... And they're actually some of the smaller ones. So, um, um, and the smaller events allow you access to, you know, to the talent, if you like. And I, I, I try very, very hard not to be starstruck, but um, because I've spent so much of my life around motorsport and, you know, I've worked in motorsport a lot of my life, um, I kind of, I'm not phased by the famous drivers anymore. Um, in, in Formula E, of course, you still get to see some of the old famous Formula One drivers. Mm -hmm. There's a story I can tell you um, about Emerson Fittipaldi, um, but it involves a lot of swearing, so I can't actually tell you that story, but let's just say. Remind me of that at the end, when, when people are getting a bit bored of listening to me talk. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I've done, you know, I've done short parts of tours with KISS, with ACDC, you know, mm -hmm. some of the world's biggest bands. But um, when I was with Capita, we had the contract for uh, a small event space in the uh, inside the old Battersea power station when it still was wrecked. Um, mm -hmm. And it was used for a lot of film sets. So I think we filmed one of the Batman movies in there. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I worked on that. Uh, one of the Fast and Furious, I think it was, I can't remember which one, Fast and Furious 364, whatever, whatever number they're on now. <laughs> um, <laughs> But there was a lot of really interesting weddings um, and gigs that would take place. And th these were quite, these quite unique because if you imagine inside the power station, which was gutted, you could, you could light it amazingly. So um, I, did a, I did an evening, two evenings there with Paul McCartney. Um, we did a, a, an evening there with um, the, what, what remains of the Who, um, um, Adam Lambert when he was just joining Queen. And it's just so nice to be able to, to sit in a space where you know there's only going to be maybe 100, 150 invited guests and there's no pressure on the, on the artist. So people just talk. Mm -hmm. um, and again, one of, one of Rick's anecdotal tales, because I'd worked in the power station for you know, so long, um, I actually had some keys. And one of my passions is architecture, particularly 1920s architecture. Um, and the original control room, um, if you're looking at the power station, you know, from the river, the um, to the right, which was the original original part of the power station, um, that control room is full of Lalique glass. Um, it's it's beautiful Art Deco. So I used to take people on, you know, Rick's guided tours of the power station, and I was asked to take this guy for for a tour, um, and he seemed an interesting guy. Um, you know, guy, uh, you know, in his sixties, beard. I didn't, you know, didn't know who he was, mm -hmm. and about half an hour into this into this tour um i kind of thought yeah um you kind of seem familiar and he was talking about growing up in chelsea and you know he actually told me that um how um houses on the other side of the river from the power station were heated um by the power station by um some of the 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 the, the, the water from the the um the, the cooling water from the power station which was then used to to heat these municipal properties so mm -hmm. it, it kind of dawned on me um, that, oh, yeah, um, 
Yeah, you're that drummer from Queen, aren't you? <laughs> Roger Taylor. <laughs> I had no clue. And you know, when I when I clicked, he realised that I'd realised, and uh, he thought that was absolutely hilarious. Um, and do you know what? Um, if I'd ever, if you look at the, who, who again, who would ever have thought that you know I would actually be talking to you know you know members of Queen? Um, but I would have always thought that he would be the one that I didn't want to talk to. And as it turned out, I mean, you know, you can, I was so wrong. What a nice guy. Um, you know, I got the stories about the dentistry and that was kind of a, a bit of a story because yes, he qualified, but never practiced. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then later on, I got to see them play, which was cool. So again, it's not always about the biggest. Sometimes yeah. it's about, you know, these kind of esoteric events where, um, it's just a small invited audience. And, mm -hmm. and again, because of my motorsport background, I've done, um, I've done some quite interesting weddings and some quite interesting, um, engagements. Um, I did Tamara Eccleston's engagement party, um, mm -hmm. when her father decided to give, um, the groom to be uh, a Bugatti Veyron. And we had to design a platform that would hold this Bugatti Veyron. Uh, to allow it to be wheeled into the uh, into the venue, which uh, proved to be very challenging. Fortunately, there's some really clever guys from a company called Star Events who who you know they came in, worked it out, did the math, built it in. Uh, I mean, it was it was like 12 hours. It was done. But mm -hmm. yeah, so it's not all about being the biggest. Sometimes it's just about doing something that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Um, I, I've got nice little stories about you know Duffy because um, she's a local girl. Um, I remember her working in our local French restaurant and um, one night she did an open mic in Chester uh, and she, yeah, she just got spotted. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily want you want, always want, you know, aspire to the biggest events. It's sometimes, you know, you can just do something small that, that's quite unique uh, and have a really good time uh, and, and do your job really well. Um, and the, going back to the Paul McCartney thing, the, um, the, the, the two nights they did in Battersea at the end of it, um, the crew asked, could I actually manage to get an extension um, uh, on the power station closing? I said, well, I, I, I'll try, um, but it, you know, it's going to be challenging. And they said, look, we need to get this stuff. It's going out on tour. Um, so we need to get everything off this stage, everything packed up and gone. So I managed to do it. Um, and as we were leaving, it was about four o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, one of the guys came over and said, um, uh, Rick Paul wants you to have this. And it was a, it was a world tour triple a pass and he said look anywhere anywhere in the world this triple a pass works and you know that probably if you said um what's your best which is what means more to you from you know your your experiences in in, in the events industry that one pass means something because i didn't do a lot but i did something that you know anyone could do but i i, I did actually just make the effort to do it um and i you know i, I was never a beatles fan um I was kind of a Wings fan, um, but yeah, I've kind, of, I've kind of grown into the Beatles ever since. You know, it's funny how little things can change your life. And, you know, I'm really, I'm, and I will come back to this, you know, uh, as we talk. Um, it's not about the big things, you know, sometimes it's about doing something small that can be, can be, can have a, uh, a big impact. So that's excellent. Like, thanks for sharing that experience with us. It's really, really fascinating. Um, see if we move on a little bit to talk about the recent race. I know this is going to be probably your biggest challenge in health and safety in your career. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, don't know where to start. Um, so, um, some good things happened before we actually 
before we actually committed to Berlin. Um, I'd been um, not fighting, but I, I'd asked for. Um, I, I recognised that I needed a specialist in um, um, in construction safety. You know, I, I muddle along. We've all got experience. You know, we you know most of us have got experience in construction or manufacturing, um, but I needed somebody with more experience than me. And um, I was giving a talk for my local IOSH branch um, um, in Wrexham, and I gave that talk. And it, it's it's the talk I gave which. Um, I think a few people are surprised at because I really struggled with my chartership um, just because I'm in the events industry, just time. And, you know, I find it difficult to get through the IPD. Um, some of the submissions are really difficult unless you're in, a, in, in traditional industry. Um, mm. So I give a talk on, you know, if you are in the events industry or you're in an industry that doesn't necessarily um, um, conform to, you know, what was in those days quite a rigid process. Um, mm. And, it's a bit irreverent. It's a bit tongue in cheek. And I've, I've seen a few senior IOSH people grown, but people keep asking me to deliver this session and I still keep delivering it. Um, and at the end of this, this young lady approached me. Um, she said, um, I, I've been working in the construction industry for five years. I've just finished my degree. Um, how do I get into the events industry? I just couldn't believe this. No, one, she had the confidence to come and speak to me. Two, she had the skills I needed. And three, it seemed a bit too good to be true. So I didn't actually push this forward. What I did, I introduced her to one of my directors. He interviewed her with one of our event directors and they said, yeah, we're gonna get this girl in for, for, for London. She is absolutely brilliant. Uh, and then as um, I was leaving the room, one of the other directors said, well, if we're gonna go through this, why don't we just keep her with us? So there's my, to start the story, I had an amazing result. I had um, a very, very talented young lady join my, my little team. Um, that's supported by uh, uh, another guy called Drew, who, who, again, I didn't look for. He kind of found me, uh, and he's been absolutely awesome. Um, he's just one of those people where you don't know that you're just so sim you know, um, simpatico, if you like. Um, and we are. Um, you know, we, we, we grate off each other occasionally, but you know, we, 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 we deliver what Formula E needs. So there's my little team. Um, I stood back from managing health and safety at, uh, at Berlin. For two reasons. One, the amount of work we needed to do around PCR testing um, and the process, um, which I'll, I'll come to in a second. Um, so I also thought this is the time for uh, my team to spread their wings um, and see what it feels like to actually manage this whole process. Um, now we always aspire to work with within best practice within CDM. Um, not always easy. Uh, but for Berlin, we absolutely set out um, and we, we followed our own CDM process. Um, the construction phase plan was superb, um, not done by me, I have hasten to add, it was done by this young lady, Alice. Um, and, uh, you know, Germans, quite interestingly, uh, although, you know, we, we presume that uh, European countries will do what we do in the UK, they absolutely do not. Um, we needed to explain what the construction phase plan was to our local colleagues. Uh, we also needed to explain what a, an event safety plan or an event safety concept was. And interestingly, they, their approach to risk assessments is very, very different to ours. Um, they're they're non-numerical. They don't like um, uh, assigning um, a numerical value to what they perceive or what could be perceived as a risk. They write everything. Like, it's fine, you know, you know. 
as long as you write it down, that's, that's fine. But I, I, I found that process challenging because we needed to change our process to match theirs. So I let Drew and Alice spread their wings. They did an absolutely amazing job. And, and bear in mind that, you know, we're, we're quite a young demographic as an organization. Our chief engineer is 30 years old. Um, and he's built every track for us. You know, he literally joined us straight out of university and he's grown with the championship. Yeah. He is a unique character. Um, just a slight, slight sidebar here. Um, he's also one of these, you know, he's a polymath. He's, he, if he picks up a musical instrument, he, he plays it brilliantly within, you know, within a few months. He plays the piano, he plays the trumpet, he plays the saxophone. It's always good when you put a beer in him in a, in a, in a pub somewhere random and there's, and there's, a, there's a piano because, you know, he's going to play the piano, you know, wearing his high vis, you know, and his safety shoes. So, you know, that's another story for another time. So I actually, yeah, I decided, you know, if I wanted to, to you know, I am supposed to have a broader view of, of, of the whole of the company. Um, and because I, I just haven't had the staff um, to support me, I, I kind of have focused on, you know, delivering the events. And that has on occasion been to the detriment of the overall running of the business because, you know, we've got, we've got, we've got a, a very plush office suite in, in Hammersmith in London. Um, we also have our logistics center in, in Donington. And th there have been occasions where just to do me never being in the UK, um, maybe I'd, I'd, I'd let some things there slip. So for me personally, Berlin was several big decisions. Let my team actually manage the race, step back, um, watch, take, a, take an overview of the bigger picture, but I really needed to support one of my uh, event directors um, who is an incredibly talented lady, masses of motorsport experience, but neither of us knew about you know, delivering uh, a race uh, in you know, following COVID protocols because there weren't any COVID protocols. And we were trying to persuade the Berlin Senate that we could actually bring you know, 1,000 foreigners into, into Germany. Um, um, and we could do that safely and not, you know, not put the local population at any additional risk. Um, as it turned out, um, we were the most conforming. And when we were traveling back and forth from the track to our hotel, it was really apparent that um, the local population in Berlin were not conforming to the, the German guidance. That proved challenging for me because I'm trying to push that we must deliver, we must work to the standard while my colleagues are looking out the window of the bus and saying, but nobody else is doing it. So um, the, the COVID protocols in themselves, um, yeah, you know, getting everybody tested once every five days, thousand people all in the same hotel, following the schedule, sounds complicated, but we've got clever, talented people. And ultimately it's a smart sheet. People turn up at the, the allotted time. Where it became really clever um, is that we used the information from the PCR tests uh, and that was integrated into our, um, our accreditation system. Uh, and there was no way that we could just bolt that in, you know, because it didn't exist. Um, and that accreditation system also allowed us access into specific areas. Now, it's very easy to put turnstiles up and put, um, um, and put in a system that allows you to, to, to access the track to a turnstile. But when you actually want to, want to introduce um, um, uh, near field identification into the accreditation that only allows you into specific zones. That's where it gets challenging. And believe it or not, we actually, uh, because of the talented people in the championship, we actually did that and it worked really, really well. And it worked so well that that will now become our standard into next season. For me, it, it gave me 
it didn't just give me information on, um, on, on you know, whether people were compliant with the COVID protocols, but for probably the first time in, well, definitely the first time in four years, I was able to tell where anybody was on site at any time. I knew how many people were on site. I knew who, who they were by name. I could tell who was leaving and if they hadn't told us or not. Now, I know this sounds a little bit big brothery, but when you've got a, you know, um, a hygiene officer from, you know, from the Berlin city, you know, watching every move you make, it's really yeah. useful information. We've also going to integrate that now into our evacuation procedures because um, we've relied heavily in the past on individuals, line managers, to feed back the information um, to us about, you know, have, have all of your team left site? You know, are you at the appropriate assembly point? Well, we, you know, now we've, we've taken a step forward in technology and we can actually, although, you know, I guess probably there are some questions to be answered, we actually know where everybody is on site. Um, and, you know, our colleagues all had to, uh, to, to prescribe to a document, uh, to, a, to, a, to this, this, this policy and actually sign um, to, to agree to be effectively, to be big brothered for a, a whole five weeks. So yeah. um, there were some very long days, very long nights. Um, we, unfortunately, the PCR tests didn't come back until midnight. So um, we would meet with the hygiene board from the local, uh, the local authority after midnight. So mm -hmm. on top of a long day, you're having a blue jeans or a Zoom meeting at midnight to discuss um, who did or who didn't pass. Um, yeah. or, uh, and in fairness, because of the type of test we used, we, we, we used different tests to, to the test used in Formula One. Um, um, again, the technology around uh, testing, I, I was unaware of this. Um, and the, 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 the number of cycles um, is highly relevant in the testing. Um, our testing, um, each test took four hours. Um, and, you know, we didn't, we chose not to use these rapid testing because it didn't, quite often with the rapid testing, it doesn't give you a definitive answer. Ours is really, really simple. You were positive or you were negative. And we only threw up one gray result um, in the whole five weeks. Which was, you know, we, we didn't, did entertain initially, um, perhaps being able to get them back, um, back to their home countries, but uh, it, you know, it wasn't acceptable. You know, we, we, we accepted the, um, the, the requirement. That, that's an interesting point, actually. Um, so from the point they proved they, they were positive, they actually were out of my control, or mine uh, and this young lady called Margot. Um, at that point, they became the, uh, they, they, they fell under the control of the local, um, the local health authorities in Berlin. Um, who again also were very professional um, but yeah so in all it worked very well if we look at the, the race itself um, I mean starting with the track builds um, a normal track build we, we probably put in together the track in between 10 and 14 days depending on the amount of infrastructure we didn't need a lot of infrastructure this time we didn't need to build grandstands we didn't need to build um, any of the normal hospitality suites that we would build because we didn't have any guests. Um, but everything else tripled in size because uh, on the back of every garage, we needed a welfare space. And on the back of the welfare space, um, you needed a, a, a zone for storage um, and, and for catering. So while we didn't actually have any guests, we actually took up the same amount of real estate, uh, real estate which was, you know, quite surprising when you saw it laid out in front of you. Um, so that was a challenge. So there was a lot of structures built um, and obviously temporary structures come with their own challenges. Um, and 
yeah, the actual the process of dismantling the track twice and rebuilding it. I mean, it was it was an epic undertaking, and we did it really well. Um, I was really surprised. Um, uh, I wouldn't say it was easy. I was just really surprised at the commitment of the staff who, you know, we'd all been in lockdown, you know, up until we flew out to, to Berlin. So everybody was determined to deliver this because we needed to deliver those six races to, to ensure that um, this season became a championship officially. Um, so yeah, people just knuckled down and, and, and we got through it. And when you consider that the, the, the moving the track block is one, one thing, moving the power cables is another thing, but God bless the, the, uh, the team, the, the, the branding team, because there was so much rebranding to do um, because the camera angles change. So can you imagine that you move a camera, you then need to move the branding so that the appropriate sponsor is in the right camera shot. Mm-hmm. The amount of work was just ridiculous. Um, and we didn't have the normal crew that we would do. So, you know, again, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, not, not going to be, you know, I'm not going to lie to, to our colleagues out there. Um, there were some very long hours worked, but the compensation was that um, that it, it wasn't continual. There would be one long day and then a break. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't it, it wasn't that we were expecting to people to work eighteen hours day on day. They might work one eighteen hour shift and then you get two or two days off. Still, um, not not necessarily appropriate, but uh, that's I'm, I'm afraid that's the reality of working in my world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not just all turning up to rock concerts and watching motor racing. There's a bit of graph that goes behind it as well. There's a heck of a lot, and you, you think um, again. I know Berlin. You and I talked about Berlin because you, you called me when I was in Berlin, and we uh, we had a five minute conversation that took what was it an hour and forty five minutes or something like that, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it was one o'clock when we finished talking in the morning. Um, so yeah, um, if we look at you know. Let's give London as an example. So we, we, we didn't come out of uh, the Battersea Park races in season one and season, season two smelling of roses. Um, some of the things that, that, that we did in those first two seasons, you know, we, we showed that we were a young company. There's mm-hmm. probably some naivety. Um, and at that point, you know, we, I, think, I think the whole company was less than, it was certainly less than 50 people. Trying mm-hmm. to deliver world-class motor motorsport, you know, um, with 50 people, uh, it, it was challenging. So in those days, I was uh, I was uh, I, I dropped in when and where they needed me. Um, so going into um, into London should have been this year. Um, it was a we the approach was completely different. Uh, we were in we our track was in Excel, um, and, and obviously Excel in it, in its own right has got well-established safety procedures and security procedures. Um, mm-hmm. And we we decided as a as a you know as a team that we were going to do literally everything by the book. Um, no, not shortcuts, um, but no, you know, we cut and paste. We all do. Don't pretend that you don't. Um, mm-hmm. From from one document to another, we rewrote um, everything for London. And I think the biggest plaudit that we've ever received, my my, my little team. Um, Newham Borough Council, their SAG, um, they, they reviewed our documentation submission, all 242 documents. Mm-hmm. Um, and they came back and they said, this is, um, this is the best submission they've ever seen for any event. Um, bearing in mind that, you know, the, the Olympics 
the Olympic yep. Stadium was inside Newham Borough. Mm -hmm. um, so I was so proud of my, you know, of, of what the work that Joe and Alice had, had, had done in preparation for that. So it was, it was, yeah, that's for me, that was the, that, that will be my memory of this season, not COVID, the fact that a little, a little team with a bit of commitment and the right people with, you know, right experience and good qualifications. Um, 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 there's a little story around Alice as well. I think Alice may well be one of the youngest ever um, chartered members. Um, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of the work they did. Because um, again, it was a race that I, I, I kind of led, you know, I led the team, but it was very much Drew and Alice that, that delivered the race. It's just a shame we couldn't do it because of, you know, what's happened this year, sadly. And you're very passionate, Rick, about giving people a chance and developing young people. What would be your advice or guidance to give to somebody starting out in health and safety today? So, take a little pause. Um, one of the things that within Formula E that you're expected to do, um, you're expected to fly the flag for the brand. Um, mm -hmm. And one of my, one of the directors I work really closely with um, is in his own right a very famous rally driver. I mean, he's in his 60s now, but you know, Back in his heyday, he was winning, winning European championships regularly. Um, he was a works driver for Lancia. Um, mm. And we've kind of developed a, a kind of a, um, a Rick and Manolo show. So Manolo, we will go to local universities, particularly we talk to engineering students. Um, and Manolo will tell war stories about rallying. Mm. Um, and then I will answer technical questions to the students around they're all interested in the battery technology. They're all interested in the charging technology. I have to be honest, um, I know enough about that technology to be able to, um, to deliver that element of the race safely. Um, but I also get a chance to, to talk to the students. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're an engineering student or whether you're doing you know, um, a degree in occupational health and safety. Um, I tell everybody to think broadly um, because it's, it's very easy um, you know, I also think it, um, sometimes universities uh, influence students. Uh, I'm not saying they do that un unduly, but uh, I think quite often people get to university and they believe they need to follow a prescribed route. Mm -hmm. um, you absolutely don't. Uh, and one of the things I think is really valuable is that you should get experience across all parts of the industry. Mm -hmm. um, um, I've certainly been a, I don't consider myself to be an expert in anything. Because absolutely clearly, if you're in the events industry, you become a jack of all trades. Um, yeah. I probably know more about um, electrical safety, particularly around battery management, than some of my colleagues might. Um, but I certainly know that the colleagues in ABB, our, our main sponsor, um, there are there are guys in there that you know that would run rings around me. But I, I'm actually pragmatic enough to accept the fact that I you know I, I know enough uh, in my small world to be able to deliver that safely and I don't try to be you know a god of anything but I think it's really important that people don't get drawn down one particular route yeah you know, there's no there's no reason why you know you shouldn't build a, a broad knowledge um, you know construction industry if you get a, a good grounding in the construction industry you can move on to anything mm -hmm. um, you know if you've worked offshore installing wind turbines in the middle of the Irish Sea in the winter um, you know You've cut your teeth in some pretty serious, you know, in some pretty serious health and safety. There's no reason why you can't go on to do an Olympic Games. 
um, mm. or you can't go on to do, you know, to work in a, in a major sporting championship. Um, and I think that's the way we build um, strength in depth. And that's where we build, you know, um, a broader knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm not decrying anybody who spent their whole life in, in, in engineering or in manufacturing or in construction. You know, people will be absolutely as passionate about those industries as I am about my industry. But you yeah. asked me what my view was. And my view was, if someone comes to talk to me uh, about coming to work, you know, in, in my team, I'm actually interested to see what they've done broadly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that leads me into another, into another thing that I'm, I'm very passionate about. Um, the two people that, that, that make up the core of my team, um, they both found me and I found them because they, like me, are passionate about volunteering. Mm-hmm. Um, now, did I just fall into motorsport? Did I just, you know, was I the only person that Formula E ever thought to speak to? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But because of my years involved in motorsport, um, you know, it's over 40 years now, um, I, I was a name that was recognized by the FIA. I, I hold a senior international officials license in my own right as a volunteer. Um, I'm, you know, obviously you and I started to talk because of the volunteer work I do with IOSH. And I I genuinely believe, and I am passionate about this, if you give your time, I mean, you just reap the rewards. Um, I I love mentoring. I meet so many interesting people. And I learn, again, um, you know, I'm really, really pleased that, that, you know, one of uh, of my mentees um, has now gone on to be uh, head of health and safety at um, at McLaren. And actually, another one is at Mercedes. So, and again, now I've got links into those two, into those two teams. I can, you know, we exchange ideas and that's what, that's what it's about for me. It's about building up a network of, of, of building up my own network of really useful guys of rugs who I can ring and ask for advice. Um, uh, a, a guy that, uh, a local guy, you know, um, from Chester, um, who, you know, he asked me what I mentor him uh, and we just hit it off. Um, He's got a broad range of knowledge from agriculture through, um, through, through construction, through property management. And I have to say, he probably doesn't realize, but an awful lot of his, um, his work has ended up in my um, safety management files because he's, he's produced some really good work, you know. And, and again, you know, there's, there's another bit of the story around, uh, you know, how I developed the Formula E um, health and safety management system. But if we just stick with what people should do, find your own way. I believe in volunteering. Um, you don't necessarily need to give up hours of your time and you don't necessarily need to give up anything related to safety. Just give something back. It's worked for me. Uh, if I hadn't been involved in motorsport, the doors that have opened for me within the World Rally Championship and Formula E uh, and other championships I've, I've worked on and, and the racetracks I've worked at, that just wouldn't have happened. Um, that's my story. Everybody needs to make their own story. They need to find their own way. Um, and, and there is sometimes that there's a, you know, you need to have a little bit of courage. Um, I, I've made decisions that have left me without money for, you know, a few months, but you know, if, if you, if you're good and you're passionate, um, I, I think your people will find their way. Um, I, I know the market currently is extremely difficult following COVID. Um, and I certainly wouldn't advise anybody to, if they're in a full-time employment right now, to go and do anything else. Uh, I definitely would advise battening down the hatches and staying where you are. Um, but it's, 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 yeah, it, it's, it's, it's been my way to, um, 
to dip in and out of different different events, different um, uh, different specialties, uh, mm. uh, and develop my own skill set. And again, I don't believe I'm uh, I'm you know I'm anything I'm anybody special. Uh, I know I've developed a unique set of skills which do make me useful in in motorsport. Mm-hmm. But if I came out of motorsport, if I were to go back into, you know, hand on heart, you know, who wouldn't want to go and work in rock and roll permanently? Um, you know, but I, yeah. I, you know, again, I'm, I'm, there are skills that I'm, I'm lacking now. Um, my crowd management skills, I get by, um, I can do the maths, um, I can do the numbers, but having it so that it's absolutely, you know, second nature to me, that's going to take mm-hmm. me another, it would take me a year to get that back and by that time I'm going to be the wrong side of 60 so I probably not a good idea um but yeah volunteer find your own way um and also don't forget you know that IOSH is full of you know interesting old people like me you know who are happy to give up their time to talk to you and offer you advice on what you might want to do uh, I'm never going to tell someone that you must do this or this is the only way for you or you know you want to get up to chartership you must do this and uh, that's just not my style but what I've got is, uh, you know, some years of knowledge. Um, um, it's very obvious that my Welshness um, makes me predisposed to chatting. Um, and again, that's something I like to do, you know. Um, so again, if anyone out there wants to, you know, wants to, you know, wants to reach out to me through LinkedIn or through IOSH, please, please feel free to do that. I can't take any more, um, any more mentees on currently. I said I would cap myself at five and I've now grown to seven um so i need to take a i need to take a pause there um but yeah so again just find your own way and you uh, and, and you don't you're not always going to get it right for sure i mean i've made some absolutely epic mistakes uh but you know and it, it, we all hear you learn from your mistakes you don't always learn from your mistakes but what i've learned from my mistakes is that um is to question myself um um, and something that's easy when you're older, um, but not so easy when, when you're younger is actually show some contrition, um, be humble, um, because there's always somebody, there's always a bigger dog. Uh, and sometimes it's just easier, even if you feel that you're, you know, that, that you're in the right, sometimes just, just think of the long game. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I've, I've used that in my safety, um, as I've developed the safety system for Formula E. Um, again, this is little bit anecdotal and if, if any of my uh, my formula e colleagues hear this they will groan out loud because they know what i'm just about to talk about <laughs> when i joined formula e um there was a there was a there was a a, a a guy in in the role at the time um but i i'd met him and i knew that he'd come from from formula one uh, and he was actually a, a factory um kind of a more of a, a on the utility side um he, he, he was more around management of, um, of the factory rather than health and safety. But what he'd done around the sporting side was very, very good. Um, when I joined Formula E and I went to what I thought was the event management system, and uh, I just found a lot of empty files. So it took me um, almost two years to develop a, um, our in-house system. And again, I took advice from colleagues, you know, all, all you good people out there that, that I, I rang up and said I need her. Um, and I got great support. I mean, I got support from the most unusual of places. Um, I've got friends at the FA who helped me, um, even friends at Airbus who helped me. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of documents that, that, that helped me get this system started. Um, um, at the time, um, I, I, 
the skill set that I was I, I really lacked was in, around environmental safety. Um, and I realized that one of our sustainability managers was primarily uh, an environmentalist um, mm. who'd moved into su sustainability. So God bless her. Um, I dragged her into you know, creating our system and kind of, I, I'm not going to labor this, but you know, uh, I, I, I literally wrote everything. Um, it was a miserable experience. Um, you know, in some respects, I, I, I learned a lot. I learned the, the spelling mistakes I make regularly, but our, our management system now runs to over 800 documents. Mm -hmm. Um, and I did find a guy who was actually prepared to, uh, to, to work through all of those documents and edit them, uh, correct the spellings. And, the interesting thing to end this little part of the story is that um, I'd, I'd resisted um, 45,001 uh, because I didn't think we were ready. Um, mm. And one of uh, my directors uh, persuaded me to submit to um, a gap analysis. Um, so we, we, we brought in a, an auditor that we use, a Portuguese lady. And uh, yeah, I was really surprised that um, we were pretty much fully compliant with 45,001 um on that initial um on that from that initial audit uh, and that's changed my mind now I, initially i thought because we hold 2012 one which means there's a lot of work from, from 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 my little team to make make sure that we maintain that standard annually um i was a little bit reluctant to commit to 45,001 at the moment because we're still growing as a business mm -hmm. um but it's actually inspired me to do two things it's inspired me to take a step back um let my colleagues run the races they're more than competent to do it um, and I can then do well I can actually stop traveling as much but I can actually look at the big picture around Formula E the business um, and also you know I'm, I'm supposed to be been preparing a, uh, a corporate risk assessment of every race for the past four years never done it because I never had the time but now my, my legal director can stop sending me you know reminder emails perhaps using expletives uh, and I can get onto that. And that's, that's part of the growth. You know, I, 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 I've grown with the championship and as much as I, you know, I want to keep hold of my baby. Um, part of that growth is to have the confidence um, to step back and allow my younger team um, to, to deliver that while I look at the bigger picture. And one of the things I'm really passionate about right at the moment is that I, because of the amount of time I spent traveling, um, I didn't get a chance to work with new, new cities early enough. So mm -hmm. we've got, a, again, we've got a, a, a great team that goes out to um, do, uh, to, you, know, you wouldn't believe this, but I think currently there are, I think there's 32 cities that have invited us to race. Okay. Um, and it's a little bit more complicated than that. You know, sadly, those cities do need to put up some money um, for us to be very interested, um, but we'll we'll we send a small team out um, who will then you know um, look at the potential for the city, um, and obviously there's a big part of this will be part of our marketing strategy. Um, but what I've never been able to do is actually get in early enough, particularly in countries where the health and safety uh, health and safety management isn't as developed as perhaps we would like it to be, and, mm -hmm. and spend time with those production companies um, and, and and you know be able to explain what we're looking for. Um, and as part of that, um, I'm now gonna, I'm now gonna focus on, on new races as we move into, you know, season seven, season eight, and hopefully beyond. 
Um, but I've also spent a bit of time um, redefining um, a lot of the terminology in our management system. Um, because I defaulted to, because I needed to create a management system relatively quickly, I'd spent a lot of time focusing on British regulations and, and guidance and focusing on making sure I referenced across through the European, you know, European regulations. And I thought I'd produced a really quite, quite, you know, for me, I thought it was quite a competent piece of work. Um, and I've realized you can't go to China and talk about British regulations. You can't go to, certainly can't go to the US and try and force, you know, British guidance um, on, onto, and certainly onto an American city, particularly not New York. So what we've done, haven't actually done an awful lot. We've, we've just now taken away the references to, you know, British and European guidance. Um, and we've just renamed it as Formula E minimum standards. So it's exactly the same, but we've taken out those words that antagonize our, our colleagues in different countries. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, we, I found it a lot easier now. And it's so simple, but it's such simple psychology. Um, the standard we're expecting them to deliver to hasn't changed. Um, mm -hmm. And the key areas that we expect, we expect them to perform in, particularly around working at height, plant, um, certainly around understanding what we mean by CDM and what we're asking from them and, and particularly around the scheduling of builds um, they they get it uh, and they don't mind getting it because we're not talking about British you know we, we're not we're not talking about British regulation British guidance so that that's been uh, for me that's been a, a big learning a big you know for me uh, it was it was a big learning um, simple psychology but it's reaped so many benefits mm -hmm. excellent tips there as well Rick um, so I think we're at the stage now that we're going to sum up a little bit and I want to thank you for coming on the show. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, we'll put your tag you up in the description when we put the description out for the video and tag your LinkedIn. There'll be a couple of ads on LinkedIn as well. And thanks very much on behalf of the viewers. I think people are going to be really interested in this one. Keep up the great work. And on behalf of the people of Scotland, when's the first Formula E race in Scotland? <laughs> I, I think it will be the weekend after the first Formula E race in Wales. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Thank you very much, Rick. You're very welcome. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide.